0: What is going on everybody? It is Jamie Shaw here on the Absolute Basketball Podcast. Very excited today to have George Mason head coach Dave Paulson with us. Dave, how's it going? It's going great, Jamie. Great, great to be on your show. Absolutely. First things first, what's on the tip of everybody's tongues in the basketball world right now is a Jordan documentary. Were you able to watch that?
1: Absolutely. You know, um, I missed last week's, so then I, I uh, did four, well, not quite four hours because I you know, DVR'd them, but three and a half hours last night. And it's just, just awesome. Just so great. And, you know, I was in coaching at the time, you know, really at the start of my coaching career. um, And I knew all those stories, but I'd forgotten. No doubt. Um, And it really just phenomenal. His competitive spirit was unlike any I've ever seen.
0: And and like you said, you know, we were alive during that time and watching and everything. And all that did it rekindles kind of some memories as to you know because stories tend to fade sometimes over over time did it kind of rekindle us that man this dude really was a killer
1: well it did you know I remember I was an assistant coach at Cleveland State uh it was one of my earliest assistant coaching positions and I remember um the Bulls coming to practice in our practice facility and it was even then it was like they were the Beatles you know just people uh lined up. And we had this the window through the head coach's office. We could watch him <laughs> practice. You know, so that that re- remembered some things. Uh, obviously, there's a big shot where he's hit over the outstretched arms of Craig Elo mm-hmm. uh, to beat the Cavs in a big series. So I remember that. Um And certainly, you know, Scotty, with the story and this was a couple ones back, Scotty Pippen not going into the game you know, when, yeah. when uh, Jackson ran the play Um uh, you know it was just it was uh, for Kukoc it was it was really that I remember that like it was yesterday because I was so mad at Scottie yeah. Pippen I was just incensed <laughs> so uh, yeah it just brought back a lot of memories and um, but the thing that I did know in talking to people who were in the NBA at the time and watching it is how competitive he was but you kind of forget it you mm-hmm. know and and certainly it took its toll, you know, but I think one of his quotes, you know, winning has a price, leadership has a price, mm-hmm. and he was willing to pay that price. And and it was it was really cool to see that.
0: And it seems, too, uh, Phil Jackson kind of had that thing figured out in a unique way in the fact that he was allowing his team almost to kind of govern, like his players to govern the team, as opposed to him really taving, taking the heavy hand. Phil Jackson kind of let Michael Jordan and, and the leaders kind of – run the team, you know, when looking at like, you know, Pippen not going in the game or, or Dennis Rodman going to, you know, wrestling in the middle of the playoffs and all that kind of stuff. Um, Very unique approach.
1: Yeah, it was a very unique approach. And I like one of um, really one of the better books I've read was Phil Jackson's 11. I think it's called 11 rings, you know, and in one of his leadership principles is faced with this dilemma I chose to dot 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 do nothing you know and and in and, and sometimes in leadership you gotta let things work them, themselves out mm-hmm. um I having said that you know I think really genius in dealing with NBA players and mega talented superstars and a cutthroat competitor in Jordan where you didn't need another bad cop if you will mm-hmm. in Phil Jackson I don't know if that coaching leadership style maybe applies as much to maybe even an average, quote unquote, average NBA team, let alone college or high school. You know, so I think, but one of the things that did come out of it is leadership is very much predicated on the context in which you're leading. And, and I think any good leader understands the room, they understand their team, they understand the, the time, and then they try to find the appropriate response. Uh, And, but I don't think duplicating what, Bill Jackson did <laughs> might be the the way to go It's funny we do these these zoom calls with our guys you know once a week, and it's it's funny you know uh we're really getting our guys to talk more during this time which is great and I said well who would be Rodman you know one of our guys he I'd be Rodman and like coach I need 48 hours in Vegas this year and I'm like that's not happening yeah nah, no, that happening. ain't. so you know I think that guys maybe get some parallels I'm, I'm no that's not gonna happen
0: <laughs> um so transition a little bit over to you as a player you played for four years in college at Williams College what type of player were you I was short, and I made up for it
1: by being slow, Jamie. Um, I was not a good player. Um, you know, I was, you know, obviously I was a head coach in waiting, and and so I think my head coach thought, well, if you're going to be a head coach and you used to sit on the bench, then probably a good place for you to spend your college career as well. Um, but I was fortunate, you know, I played or was <laughs> played, I use that term loosely, uh, for Harry Shee, who was one of the most successful Division three head coaches in the history of the game uh, at Williams. And he became um, really my mentor when I went into coaching and then uh, became the athletic director at Williams, hired me mm-hmm. back as head coach. Now he's the director of athletics at Dartmouth. And when you know you talk about leadership, uh, he was as good a leader. He was as good a teacher in terms of building a team as any have been around. And, and uh, obviously the game has changed tremendously since I was in college. But the principles stay the same. And, and much of what I do and who I am as a coach is, is because of those four years with Harry Sheehy.
0: And you, so you played your four years. I, I believe it said that you were, a, you, you, you were an assistant or a volunteer assistant for, at Williams for a year. And then you went on to Michigan as a GA.
1: Yeah. So my first job right out of high school was a small, I mean, out of college was a small private high school in Englewood, New Jersey, Dwight, mm-hmm. Dwight Englewood School. So I was a high school, I was a head coach of the varsity team. And I coached eighth and ninth grade history. Um, and it actually really enjoyed the teaching part of it, but coaching was unequivocally my passion. And so I went back to Williams, a volunteer assistant coach. I was a, a part time sports information director. I interviewed for the admissions office. I was a JV baseball coach at the local high school. Um, you know, stayed in a, in a room at a, you know assistant football coach's house for 100 bucks a month. And it was fun. You know, it was great. It was total immersion into it. And I had grown up in Wisconsin, went to school in in Massachusetts. And every summer I would kind of work my way back home, working camps. And so I worked the Michigan camps. Mm -hmm. And Steve Fisher at the time was the assistant to Bill Frieder as a head coach at Michigan. And so he hired me, I worked camps for him. He liked the job I did. And then in 1989, when I was an assistant at Williams, Steve Fisher's the interim head coach at Michigan. You know, and again, I, you're probably too young to know this story, but uh, 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 Bill Frieder takes a job at Arizona State. Bo Schembechler says we're going to have a Michigan man, coach of the Michigan team. Makes Steve Fisher the interim head coach with no chance for him to be the head coach at Michigan. But they go on a six-game magical run, win the national championship. Uh, coach Fisher becomes a coach at Michigan, he hires me as a, as a grad assistant.
0: So coming off of, of that national championship run that they had, you come in with that team, you still have the likes of Rumil Robinson, uh, Terry Mills, Loy Vaught on that team, and then also Steve Fisher, who's arguably one of the best coaches in, in college, the recruiting-wise, just all-encompassing. What did you learn from Fisher during that time, and what was it like being around those type of players?
1: Well, the thing I learned about Coach Fisher number one, one of the best coaches, but a way, way, way better person. Um, he's as genuine and sincere a man as I've been around. And, you know, so that was just, it was, he was a great role model for me. He uh, wasn't full of himself, mm-hmm. you know, and if, if you ran into him on the street, say, I had Dave Paulson on my podcast, he would stop and sit down and have a cup of coffee with you and tell his director of operations, tell you, say, Coach Fisher, you know, you're late for your next meeting. He's just a genuine, sincere person. And then, um, you know, he was he he coached to his personality. So mm. he had goofy mannerisms and he, you know, he was like an old school teacher in some way. And the guys would make fun of him, but they loved him. The guys on the team, they loved him because they knew he was sincere, and they knew he was genuine. And, um, you know, he didn't get too high, you didn't get too low. And I think if you're going to have a long career coaching, you know, that has to be kind of your mantra.
0: And then after after that, you go on to Cleveland State uh, with Coach Mike Boyd uh, to be an assistant coach there. What would you say is the biggest difference from being a GA to actually getting on the court as as a coach at the Division One level? Yeah, it was, again, I, I was
1: really, really fortunate, you know, to be able to go back to Williams as assistant to, to – maneuver my way into uh the grad assistant position at Michigan and then Mike Boyd was a top assistant at Cleveland State and he took me with him as his top assistant so I was 25 and I was uh you know a top assistant in a in a good mid-major program and it was kind of baptism and fire you know it's very easy as a as a grad assistant you got all these great ideas and now you're out there doing it um and but but it was great because I got to, to recruit uh, you know, relentlessly um, get to really help Mike uh, kind of build the program and, and, and institute our offensive and defensive system, scout, you know, and it was just, you know, for back a letter, you know, it, it was my master's degree in coaching in terms of this worked great, this didn't work great. Right. You know, this was back in the day. One of the interesting things was you could live scout back then. Division one has long since gone away from live scouting. Mm-hmm. You know, and you, your access to film was way less than what it is now. Now you can get every possession of every game played anywhere in the country or the world. There you're lucky if you had two or three VHS tapes. Um, so going to do live scout was really – was fun in sitting courtside and watching coaches coach. But you you know, one of the things that you miss just by watching film that you can get when you go live scout is how coaches interact with their players, how they manage timeouts, things like that. So it was just a tremendous learning and, and, and immersion experience for me. And then in,
0: in nineteen ninety-four, you get the opportunity to become the head coach at uh, St. Lawrence uh, College What all went into that decision to kind of move down the chair and and take over your own program at the D3 level? So, to
1: me, um, you know, there's a lot of different ways to do it. Mm -hmm. And um, I just decided I want to be head coach. And, um, you know, I wanted to be responsible for my own – now, to some degree, you're putting your old livelihood in the hands of 18- to 22-year-old males, so (laughs) nobody's ever really – able to control their, their destiny. But I wanted uh, to have my success, you know, for me to only blame myself if, yeah. if we didn't have success or if we had, or if we did have success. Um, and I wanted to be a place where I could really have an impact with kids. And I played division three basketball uh, at a really good school, St. Lawrence, a really good school in upstate New York. And it was, it was the chance again to, really immerse myself in the game and make mistakes, you know, in, in teaching zone offense or, or making a game decision to play. And there's 250 people there and nobody really knows, you know, so you can make your mistakes in anonymity and you can learn, um, in a slightly less pressurized environment. I think one of the things, you know, some people who've been assistants for so long and they get a division one head coaching job uh, and they've never been a head coach. Mm-hmm. They're making their mistakes now, with tremendous scrutiny yeah. and tremendous uh, visibility, and that's hard. Um, y- y- you know, you're never ready to be a parent until you're a parent. You're never ready to be a spouse until you're a spouse, and you're never really ready to be a head coach until you actually do it. Uh, and you know, I think the people who grow the most are the ones who are able to make mistakes, learn from them, and continually adapt and adjust. And sometimes. You know, at the smaller college level, you have the luxury of making mistakes and being able to overcome them.
0: And then over your final two years at St. Lawrence, you were 40 and 13 with two NCAA D3 appearances, still under the age of 35 uh, at that point. What did you learn the most over your three seasons there? Well, I think, again, you learn
1: everywhere you go, how you go about building a program. You know, and I think I've been at a lot of different schools as a head coach. And I think one of the things you have to really understand is the school and the institution and what works at that school. Um, Where is your niche in recruiting? Where can you get people? uh, Who fits? Who you're going to win recruiting battles with? Who you're not going to win recruiting battles with? And then also what works in your conference? Um, You know, what can be your strengths vis a vis your, your opponents in that league? Um, and then build a program, build a system that's going to work there. Um, And so I think I've played a lot of different ways at different schools I've been at. Um, That's been fun, but it's also, uh, you know, always, you're kind of always reinventing yourself.
0: So you go from uh, St. Lawrence to LeMoyne, and then from LeMoyne back to your alma mater, Williams. I guess over 14 years into your head coaching career, you've amassed 202 wins, six NCAA tournaments, and a championship. Uh, After that 07-08 season, you know, you're 44, 45 years old. Where's your mind at at this point in time as a head coach in your career? So, you know,
1: and the chance to go to Williams is my alma mater. And I I remember at the time, a guy goes, you're going from D2 to D3. I'm like, Williams is the Duke of, of, of D3. I'm like, we can win a national championship. And we're fortunate. You know, here she had taken Williams to the Final Four in 97 and 98, and then in 2000 he becomes the uh, AD. Mm -hmm. And I went there in 2000 um, thinking I was going to be there forever. And I would have been happy being there forever. Great school. Uh, They give you tenure as a coach, you know, so I would still be the coach there. Um, And a place where you can get – one or two potential division one players a year who choose the mix of academics and athletics. So we won a national championship in 2003. We lose in the championship game 2004. We have a group that's freshman laden that we think will go. And, and, uh, you know, I think, I think that the guys I left went to three final fours after I left. So I'm like, Hey, you know, we could win multiple championships, uh, small community loved it. Um, but by the same token, you know, I was open if there was an opportunity that fit for me uh, philosophically to challenge myself at a higher level. And, and uh, uh, Bucknell, um, you know, kind of a search firm, reached out to say, hey, would you be interested in, in the Bucknell job and, uh, you know, great school academically. So very similar to, to Williams. Um, you know, you're recruiting maybe from the same uh, areas, the same AU programs, you're just recruiting maybe, you know, the one guy better, you know, the little bit better player on, on that particular team. Um, although not always Duncan Robinson was a pretty good player who started off at Williams, you know? So uh, that was, you know, as I got further along the process, I'm like, yeah, this fits with my values and, and, and philosophy and, and, and went to Bucknell and, and uh, had just a phenomenal seven years there, and, and, uh, you know, we were able to have quite a good deal of success as well.
0: So I'd like to kind of sit down um, in that little transition, you know, by all accounts, you had an insanely successful career at the D3 uh, level um, up to this point, even in the 14 years. Looking back on it, uh, what was the biggest learning curve that you had jumping from Williams and that success to Bucknell, uh, D3 to D1 levels?
1: So the biggest... Learning curve for me. Um, well, you know, again, you, you're trying to figure out what works at at at, at that level. Um, you know, I think probably for me in Division three, I always had, you know, a 22 or 23 year old assistant coach who would make four thousand dollars. Like Williams, uh, back then, especially in the whole NESCAC conference, did not want they didn't want to be in a, in an athletic arms race. And so they, you really didn't pay your assistant coaches and you'd help them, uh, get a job substitute teaching or working at the local youth center, ref and soccer games and basketball games and found a a cheap, you know, uh, duplex where everyone could live for 150 bucks a month or something like that. And, uh, make friends with the people in the dining hall and sneak the guys in the back door so they could eat. Um, so, and then to have a full-time professional staff, and mm-hmm. so in division three, you know I was used to doing everything, you know, doing all the scouts, presenting the scouts, gassing up the vans, you know ordering the the food. Um, so how do you delegate without abdicating? Mm-hmm. You know, I think that is managing a staff um, where I've still got my hands on everything, but yet give up some control. And, and make yourself better, you know. So I think that w- was probably the single biggest and, and one of the more rewarding adjustments is how do you get better by having a bigger staff? Learn from them, take the best, but still ha- set the tone and, and have your fingerprints over everything. Um, so that was probably one. And then I think the other thing, I, I think the difference is, you know, in Division Three versus Division One, there's great coaches in Division Three, without a doubt. But all those coaches tend to have maybe one assistant coach, so mm-hmm. the level of specificity and scouting and detail isn't the same. And so, uh, you know, in Division Three, you would be forced to get to your second option. Uh, to score. And I think in division one, you're forced to get your third or fourth option, you know? So I just think there's, there's nuances. And I remember, I never felt like I was overmatched coaching at a game Mm -hmm. until my first year at Bucknell going against Ralph Willard at Holy Cross. And, you know, the expression, he was playing chess and I was playing checkers. I was like, wow, this, you know, and we would guard something a certain way. And we're like, okay, we got them stopped. They come out of a timeout and they would bait how we'd guard something. And they'd run a counter. And they'd get a layup or a wide open three. And I remember watching the film afterwards like, wow, do I have a lot to learn. And so, I, you know, and there were so many good coaches. And I think, again, it challenged me to, to become better as a coach.
0: And. Even in your seven years at Bucknell, you won 134 total games. You won 70% of your Patriot League games. You made it to a postseason tournament four of your last five years. Kind of expanding upon that, how do you feel like you grew the most during your time at Bucknell?
1: Well, you know, uh, we, we played different ways. You know, so one of the things that we did is we were playing the way I played at Williams, and um, – I remember this like it was yesterday. We ran more of a kind of uh purer motion, uh, you know, screening away, cutting, passing motion. And I remember playing a game on the road at Dartmouth where we put up like 42 points and losing and driving home in the bus through a blizzard, watching the game, and like that was a good shot. That was a good shot, and getting mad at my team for their execution. And Aaron Kelly, who was my assistant at the time and and was with me at George Mason, now as the head coach at Catholic, he said, you know, maybe it's not a good shot for our guys, coach. And I briefly fired him. Um, and and then, you know, the next day I'm like, he was right. Yeah. And we switched and went to much more of a ball screen-oriented motion offense and and had to change and adapt and, and had great success with that. Um, And then, you know, and fortunately, I really good players. Mike Moscow still plays for the Oklahoma City Thunder uh, and really good players. And then my last year at Bucknell, um, the ball screen offense wasn't as good for our guys. And we we had guys who could really shoot off stagger screens. And we literally changed during semester exams and, and changed our offensive approach and ended up winning the regular season title. Um, losing in the conference tournament and went to the NIT that year. So we played like three different offensive styles and I learned how to kind of tweak what we did to what I thought would best serve our team.
0: So, and, and kind of expanding on that a little bit during your time at Bucknell, you really did become known for your motion style offense while it kind of tweaked, tweaked it and varied and, and it a little bit. What type of basic principles did you stay on with that motion style offense that, that, stayed true the entire time? Well, at Bucknell, I
1: mean, we really, again, motion, I mean, you know, back in the day when I was coming up, you know, it was Bob Knight and, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, Gene Cady, um, you know, what I would call quote unquote pure motion, not as many rules, a lot more off ball screens. Um, you don't see it that much anymore anywhere, you know, Purdue to some degree, um, uh you know maybe um Kansas state a little bit with um Bruce Weber but you, you just you don't see it as much um and because of that kids coming up through high school reading off ball screens weren't as proficient Whereas everyone plays off ball screens more so basically what we try to do is okay well what are the best principles of motion offense Re- ball reversals from one side to the other side of the floor you know uh, making the defense work, creating a good shot, having great spacing, um, and reading the defense, how do they guard things. And so we took those principles and then tried to adapt them, you know, to, to a ball screen motion offense. And then that has adapted and changed as the game has changed. You know, even when I got to Bucknell, everyone played with, you know, three guards and, and two, two, you know, two more inside oriented players. And uh, whether it was the skill level of players or the analytics movement or both, you see much more four-out, one-in mm-hmm. now. So, again, always kind of changing and
0: evolving. And then in your time at Bucknell, 08 to 15, you recruited four of Bucknell's 10 all-time leading scorers with Muscala, Fulan, uh, Ayers, and Thomas, and three of the top 10 assist guys, uh, Brown, Casper, and Coleman. How did you go about recruiting to your niche while at Bucknell? Well, you know, and
1: Bucknell's got, uh, like, uh, it is a great school. And, mm. it, and it's got uh, a beautiful campus and a great tradition and beautiful facilities. And you have a niche. Like, we felt at Bucknell, you could find one kid a year who uh, would go with that combination of academics um, and small school atmosphere with a winning tradition. You could always get one player a year who would turn down higher, quote unquote, higher level scholarship offers. Um, you know, so we really had a niche there and we could really get skilled, smart guys. We weren't going to be exceptionally athletic. Um, so we knew what we were looking for. And I think the other thing we we learned was pretty quickly, you know, I think the next best thing to yes and recruiting is figuring out your no early on so you can move on to the next guy. And, and so I think what, what we did pretty well there was figure out this guy, what we're about, I think it can resonate with him and his family and his coaches. And the next phone we'll call, I don't think this guy understands what we're about, you know, f- you know forget it. So um, you recruited nationally, so our, our expanse was bigger, but our pool was smaller mm-hmm. because of the academic component uh because of the fit component and it I think it allowed us to become really efficient and and we by the end um uh, like the last class I recruited didn't have a chance to coach a kid named Kimball McKenzie had a great career at Bucknell a kid Nate Sistine had a great career and then finished up his this fifth year at at Kentucky didn't have a chance to coach those guys the the, the group I coached for one year Nana a Zach Thomas Stephen Brown mm-hmm. all uh so I forgot to put do not disturb on my, uh, on my computer. Um, uh, so all those guys, um, you know, they, they, they really just, they fit uh, for sure. So I think that was the key It's like figuring out your niche very, very early
0: on. And now you're heading into your fifth year at Georgia Mason. You return your top seven scores who played at least 10 games last year. Seven of all seven of those guys started at least twelve games. How important is it to have that type of roster continuity for success?
1: Well, it is. You know, I think, you know, and it's 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 been a heck of a challenge and adjustment. You know, in the eight ten, I mean, such a good league, so many good coaches, and again, I think finding out what your niche is and and how you win, and I think you can win with a lottery player certainly. Or you or or you win by being deep and old, you know. And I think we were like this past year, eleven and two in the non-conference, the best non-conference season ever. And then you know our leading player, our best player, breaks his foot. Uh, another guy who led us in scoring through the first nine ten games at fifteen points a game gets pneumonia and is sick for two or three weeks before we figure out his pneumonia and effectively misses a third of the season. And it, it, it took away our depth. Uh, We had a young man, Ian Boyd, who's from North Carolina who's going to come back for his fifth year, missed the entire year um, with a second wrist surgery. So, um, so that really, you know, made it hard to win uh, at the level we want to in the a 10. Now Ian's coming back for his fifth year. Uh, As you said, You know, one of the things, because of the injuries, some guys played, got experience, uh, emerged. So we are, we're going to have, you know, seven, I'm trying to think here. Yeah. Seven guys coming back Mm -hmm. who've started a good number of games. who have all, you know, seven guys returning, who've all had multiple double figure scoring games. We think we have, uh, what is on paper our strongest recruiting class. Mm -hmm. Um, So we think we're getting to that position where we can really compete at the top of the A-10. It's taken longer than I wanted. It's taken longer than I would have anticipated. It's taken longer than some of our fans would have liked, um, than I would have liked. But I think uh, we've built a foundation. I think we've built um, our culture, and I think we're ready to be really, really competitive at the top level of the eight ten, the other thing we've been able to do, and it's taken them time, is to really, you know, build our credibility and trust with the local mm-hmm. p- prospects. So this is a third consecutive year where we've had a first team All Met player coming in. So we got a young man named Ronald Polite, Moxon Hill High School, was first team All, you know, Washington Met, um, and uh, had Xavier Johnson and Jordan Miller. And you know, Jordan Miller as a freshman. So he's going into his junior year. Xavier Johnson started as a freshman, had a great freshman year, going into his sophomore year. So, you know, I think uh, building up the depth and building up a chance to go get one of the five best players in the, in the greater uh, Washington, D.C. area.
0: And, and expanding on that thought process a little bit, on your roster next year, you, you, you have nine players who are either from or played high school basketball in Virginia or Maryland, uh, and including two of the four in this upcoming class. Is locking up your backyard a major focus for you in the recruiting? No question, you know, and I think that took time,
1: you know, and I think there's different ways that you can go about the recruiting process, um, and you know, I'm not, I'm not a gimmick guy, uh, I'm not, you know, uh, tricks and whistles, and you know, I, I, I'm more about building steady, solid relationships, you know, so that has taken time to earn the trust, respect. You know, how do you, how do you show trust, respect to high school coaches, to AU coaches Where you show up? You show up all the time, and, and you're legitimate, you're sincere, you're honest, uh, you're responsive. When you say you're going to call the coach on Tuesday, you call the coach on Tuesday. When you know, And I think that has built up our trust um, with the local community that's going to help us be built to last. Um, but I might be biased, but this is the best high school basketball area in the country Mm -hmm. Uh, just the depth of, of talent the the diversity of skill levels and the quality of coaching i mean it is phenomenal um you know and i think the other thing is these guys who come out of this area they're used to the rigors of competition at an extremely high level on a nightly basis uh, so there's great basketball all, all over the country all over the world there's great coaching all over the world but the crucible of competition here in this area yeah, is second to none in my opinion.
0: Mm-hmm. And Javon Green, Jordan Miller, A.J. Wilson they averaged uh, a combined 39 of your team's 67 points uh, per game last season what are you expecting of this trio of players this coming year?
1: Well, you know, I, I, I think they're all capable of being all-conference players. And, um, you know, going into this year, we thought we had one guy who could be capable of being an all-conference player this year it was Justin Kyer. He ended up having a stress fracture, missed in the beginning of the season, missed the end of the season when he re broke his foot. Um, I don't, you know, we have got three guys who are capable of becoming all-conference players. That's a great place to start. Um, now, what they have to do is, they have to embrace that, uh, but not um, obsess about it. You know, I think sometimes expectations, you know, can be something not doing. And we just said, you know, you don't have to play an extraordinary level. You just have to play consistently. And so when thing I just expect and hope for these guys to be consistent and, and to be great leaders as well as great performers. But they're all – Really, they're all really capable, and I'm excited about that nucleus.
0: And you mentioned your class you have coming in earlier. Uh, you have a four-man class coming in, Malik Henry, Otis Frazier, Tyler Kolick, and Ronald Polite. You had to go out and get these guys. You know, Henry from Texas, he had 10 or so offers. Frazier with 20 or so. You had Kolick around 25. What do you like about this class, and what do you expect from this class?
1: Well, what I like about this class, you know, number one, they're they're my kind of guys. They're good guys. They're good people. and like. Character is something that we just really, really value in the recruiting process. We don't ever want to take a shortcut, you know, in that regard. So that's number one. Mm -hmm. Um, number two, you know, I think, uh, the pieces fit together, you know, so you've got, uh, this can be a group that can play all together on the floor at the same time and really grow together. Um, you know, in, in Ronald polite, um, He's got a feel, and he's got a charisma, and he can pass, he can score. He's got great vision and size for a point guard. Um, uh, Tyler Kolick, you know, is an elite shooter, and everyone talks about that, but I think he's an elite passer and rebounder for a guard as well, so incredibly versatile. Um, uh, You know, Malik Henry, who we signed early, is an elite shot blocker, rim runner, um, Offence a rebounder, but played for a just a phenomenal high school coach, so his, his skill levels continue to emerge um, and then you know we were able to get Otis Frazier in the spring period, and I think he you know maybe personifies the game of basketball coming up now, positionless basketball where I think he, you know he can he can guard four positions on the floor, he can play four positions on the floor. Uh, he's got a toughness to him, a defensive versatility to him. So, and I think the other thing is, is we've got really good eight ten 10 level size and athleticism at every
0: position. Over the last four years at George Mason, you're 41 and 28 at home. How important is it holding court at home and the atmosphere that you guys bring uh, to the table?
1: I think it's really, really important. And we want that percentage to go up. You know, and, and I think it would have been higher this year if, if we hadn't had some of those injuries that hurt us in conference play um, because we want to create this as an environment where it's very, very hard to beat us. Uh, you know, a part of that is stems from the players for sure and a belief uh, in, in playing at home, but part of it stems from the atmosphere. Uh, if anyone has not come to Eagle Bank Arena, our pep band is called Doc Nicks and the Green Machine. Doc Nicks, um, well, there's no way to describe it except for you got to come watch a game. Um, been, they've been voted routinely the number one pet band in the country. Um, and they, you know, if it's a Tuesday night in November and it's snowing out and the crowd isn't that big, it's still, they still make an electric atmosphere. Mm-hmm. But in the nights on a Saturday afternoon, Saturday evening, home game, conference game, January, February, when the place is packed, with that band, you know, the place just rocks. And Eagle Bank Arena is a great arena because it's older. So it's, it goes more straight up. You know, the, the newer buildings have to, have to, you know, be built out a little bit. You know, so it, it, it really rocks. We haven't gotten to where we believe we're going to get as a program. And I always say, boy, if we take that, quote, unquote, next step, this place will be electric. And I'm hopeful that it
0: happens this year. Oh, absolutely. And, and, you know, you're building that. But with that right now, you're obviously a teaching and developmental coach. And with your system playing a big role in the kind of the success as to how your team plays, now that we're in a time of quarantine, how is this affecting you and kind of your team not being able to have your hands on the players?
1: Well, you know, it, it's it's frustrating. You know, obviously the first and most important thing is that, that we want our guys and we want the world in general to be safe, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but these are guys that are used to being in the gym not 365 days a year, but 355 days a year. And it's now been, what, 65, 70, 75 days when, when we haven't been with them. Mm-hmm. You know, so I think our emphasis to our guys is, well, how do you get better during this time? You know, one of the hardest things to get from today's players is to get them how to talk, to get them to engage with each other, to get them to proactively communicate. And so we do these once a week, these kind of team calls. And my assistants have done a great job of one assistant will be in charge and he'll have three or four players helping lead the discussion and really getting our guys to talk and really get them to engage. Um, about issues, about leadership, about you know, current situation with the pandemic, uh, you know about the Jordan documentary, about mm-hmm. um, things like that. And it's been really fun. And so we're certainly not getting better in terms of you know, reading a ball screen or, or making a low post move, but I do think our communication is getting better. Uh, we've done a lot of film work with our guys at a level Deeper than, you know, if it was a normal year, we'd have taken two or three weeks off and then we'd have gotten in the gym for our four hours a week and mm-hmm. working on our individuals and working on some team stuff and it would have been more business as usual. And because we can't, we're spending more time one-on-one, you know, with, you know, with each guy, film clips of what they did well, of film clips of, of what they, you know, where they need to get improved, of, of splicing an NBA uh, clips so if we can come out of this certainly not physically prepared like I don't care what anyone says doing push-ups at home and ball handing in your driveway can only go so far um, but if we come out a, a better communicating team in a smarter more analytic uh, group of guys then I think we can you know when when our physical catches back up we can come out of this you know hopefully ahead of maybe some other people
0: Kind of winding things down here a little bit, if you could right now look back at high school teacher Dave Paulson, what piece of advice would you give him? What piece of advice would you give that guy right now?
1: That's a good one. You know, um, you know I think being willing to listen, you know, like it's a fine line, like basketball rewards, discipline and creativity in equal doses mm-hmm. you know and I, th- I think every coach is trying to find that balance between discipline and creativity and and one of the things that i've learned even during this pandemic um, kids want to do the right thing mm-hmm. guys want to do they want to get to 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 where you want them to be they don't know how to do it um, and and it requires more forethought but If you can engage with your players and get them to take leadership and ownership of helping to create your core values and your culture, it's going to last longer. You know, a a team-directed culture is much more effective than a coach-directed culture. So I think always wanting to have that discipline and yet being willing to listen more to your players. Is is the trick, and I I like to think I'm better at that now than I was. Some of our players might disagree, but but that's a continual work in progress.
0: And then uh, on the recruiting trail, you know, we have a lot of kind of parents and kids and stuff that listen to this on the recruiting trail. What piece of advice would you give high school kids who are trying to get recruited, and advice to give them as to how they can stick out when they're on the floor playing to a coach who may be watching? Well, the first piece
1: would be to the high school parents, let their kids play, and don't act like crazy people in the stands. Um, You know, there's been a number of guys that I decided to stop recruiting because of the way that their dad or mom acted in the stands. Um, i got to be pretty darn certain that you're going to be first team all-conference, potentially player of the year in our league for me to deal with that, um, you know, because no matter who you are, where you are, unless you're, you know, a one and done, surefire lottery pick, you're you're gonna have frustration at college and you're gonna have failure. And so I think learning how to handle that. Um, again, to me, I, I'm a little old school, I look at body language. So the in-person evaluation, and much more film evaluation, obviously, now with the pandemic, but certainly with more video being available, we'll be able to figure out if the kid's good enough with his skill, uh, if, he, if, if he's athletic enough, if he's – okay? I think what sets players apart is, are the intangibles. Do you work hard? What happens when you make a mistake? You sprint back on defense. You know, are you a good teammate? Are you receptive in huddles? Like, I'm watching that stuff all the time and I would assume most of my counterparts as well. Um, so I just think you stand out by doing the little things every day and that will speak volumes.
0: Last question. Your story is obviously far from over as a coach, but if you had to look back and you had a book written about your 32 years in the profession, what would the title of your book be? (laughs) Oh, wow. Uh, that's a, that's a good question. Boy,
1: this is tough. What you, I didn't know I was going at 60 minutes here, Jamie. Um, <laughs> title of my book would be uh, Do As I Say, Not As I Did. How about that?
0: <laughs> Love it. That's awesome. That's awesome. Coach, thank you so much for your time here. I appreciate you spending a little bit uh, here with us and, and sharing your story and, and helping these uh, you know, people listening out.
1: Uh, my pleasure. Uh, glad appreciate what you're doing for the game, and uh, hope everyone stays safe and healthy. And we'll be back to close to normal sooner than we than we, know, than we know.
0: Absolutely, everybody. Thank you all for listening so much to the Absolute Basketball Podcast for Dave Paulson. I am Jamie Shaw, and we will see you next time.